This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've always been curious about what massive fame does to the the frontal lobe that is still being formed. And I don't, I mean, I don't even know if if that is a thing that you can pull yourself outside of yourself to to know. You know, you're in a candy store, so you want more candy. You know what I mean? This is a very special episode of Waiting for Impact because that is Joey McIntyre from New Kids on the Block. If we're talking about boy band pop stars of the early 90s, there is no bigger get. He was at the pinnacle, the absolute best-case scenario for the kind of fame Sudden Impact were preparing themselves for. For a few years, peaking it right around the time Sudden Impact was pointing at you, and Hayden and Yvette Nicole Brown were singing for Michael Bivens in his Sheraton Hotel lobby, New Kids on the Block were something more than just popular. They were like multi-platinum album, stadium tour, deafening screams of girls in the throes of puberty, huge, massive, until they weren't. So then what happens? You're spiritually, physically, mentally handed cupcakes all day long. So you think that's what's feeding you. So how else am I? What's the biggest cupcake? In 1991, Joey was on top of the world. But when you're on top of the world, there's really only one direction you can go. When you're so high and you're at the top, any little slip feels like it's it's over. You know what I mean? And yeah. So and that's how it's almost like it was like a party, you know. So for for me as like a kid, you know, a young kid, I was like, oh, man, the party's over. But wait, why? What? What? And my my buddies are like. Yeah, man, I'm not feeling it, man. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but but it, we're, we're still, what do you mean? Like, people are here and music, you know, and they're like, no. Joey got the fame and fortune that Sudden Impact were after. So while I wait to find out if Aaron Kane is going to get back to me, if I can stop myself from screaming at Joey McIntyre, I'm going to talk to Joey McIntyre about it. Find out if life as a teen idol was all that it was made out to be. And find out what it did to him. And what you do when the party's over and you're 21. When you're fed a certain thing, that's what you think is going to sustain you, you know what I mean? Until you figure something else out. This is Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. I joined New Kids on the Block uh, at 12. And by the way, is that your dog? Because that was on the list. That is my dog. That was on the list. That was, yeah. Make sure we love you guys. Joey McIntyre is busting my chops because when we book a guest, we send an email telling them to record from a quiet place in their house, maybe put their dogs in a crate. And I didn't put my dog in a crate and now my dog is barking. Joey is also busting my chops because he's from Boston. And as we have established, that is what they do there. 
But in my place in Los Angeles, it is very noisy. There's also, there are people, I, I think, building a home from scratch, uh, like 10 feet from my backyard. <laughs> this is an absolute <laughs> sonic nightmare of a day. <laughs> okay. We'll fix it. We'll All fix right. it, Joe. I'm sorry. I'm we'll sorry. fix it in post. Joey's in a parked car outside his New York City apartment because he's got kids, and that's as quiet a place as he can find. The idea of Joey McIntyre just being out there in public, unguarded, is crazy to me. Because I'm old enough to remember when he was a teen idol. Back in 1991, the sight of Joey McIntyre would make girls lose their minds. It all started with a ballad called Please Don't Go Girl in 1988. And as Joey notices a framed photograph of a New York City landmark behind me in my office, I learned something I did not know about the video for that song. Oh my God, now I'm seeing it. Is that CBGB's? CBGB in the Bowery in New York City was ground zero for New York City punk music in the 1970s. It was full of noise and heroin and vomit. If you think about the CBGB bathroom too hard, you get hepatitis. Fun fact, that's where we did our first video, CBGB's. Yes, the, a pop boy band at CBGB's, Please Don't Go Girl. You stop this. Swear to God. You stop it, that. I know. Isn't that wild? That in is CBGB, no, CBGB's, absolutely. So the next time you see that, you'll know, and you might recognize it. I don't know what's funnier, the fact that Joey McIntyre thinks I watch New Kids on the Block videos regularly, or the fact that he's right. But there you go. The tender ballad that launched the great American boy band of the 80s and 90s was filmed on the stage that gave us the Ramones in television. Now it's a John Varvatos. And I it's, know, it's, it's so fun. weird. What's actually weird is that I have a framed photograph of CBGB hanging in my office because I used to live very close to it in New York City and I never went even once because I was scared. But Please Don't Go Girl blew up and the hits kept coming. For about three years, new kids were the pop group. Joey's a good example of someone whose plans for pop music success did pan out. So I wanted to talk to him about the whole ride and whether he's glad he took it. And my friends, Joey gets real. I joined... Uh... New Kids on the Block when I was 12. Okay. It wasn't a cattle call. It wasn't a big American Idol search. I think a total of eight people auditioned. So it wasn't a huge deal at the time. And, you know, for the first three years, we really, although we got to go into a studio and record, we, we were really just, you know, it was an after school thing. In 1984, after New Edition came back home from their first world tour and were mailed a check in the amount of $1.87 for their work, the group fired their manager, Maurice Starr. Starr responded by holding auditions for a new vocal group, five members just like New Edition, but white. He found five guys. Joey was the last to join. They called themselves Nanook at first, and they got signed to Columbia Records, and Columbia Records said, change that name. Track one on side two of their debut album became their new name, New Kids on the Block. That first album came out in 1986. It was marketed to R&B radio stations, and it tanked. I mean, that being said, when I was 15, we got a break and we were gone. In 1988, they released a second album, Hangin' Tough. It too was pushed to black audiences, and it too tanked, at least at first. Columbia Records was getting ready to drop them. And then Q105, Q105, a top 40 station in Tampa, Florida, began playing Please Don't Go Girl. And their listeners began requesting it. So Q105, Q105 started playing it a lot. 
Columbia changed their marketing strategy and began to push the record at top 40 stations. It worked. The album Hangin' Tough went on to sell 14 million copies. That, of course, is the title track from Hangin' Tough. And if you were alive and under 20 years old in 1989, your arms are up over your head right now. You're waving them back and forth. You can't help it. It's a reflex action. The album Hangin' Tough put five singles into the top ten. In a flash, New Kids on the Block became huge. How huge? Christmas album huge. We know what millions of girls all over the world want Santa to bring them for Christmas. My next guest, performing the hit single, Funky, Funky Christmas, from their platinum album, (laughs) Merry, Merry Christmas. Please welcome the new kids on the block. Yep, that was Arsenio Hall. I just really wanted you to know about Funky, Funky Christmas. But new kids' popularity was a very specific kind of popularity. And so then for, for those next several years, it was just adoration for you. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it was. I mean, yes. You know what comes into my mind is like, yes, of course, of course. You know, it was adoration, but you're also it's also us against the world. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. when you're coming up, uh, and and I want to say it seems more so back then because it feels more romantic. It's almost like a movie. Like we're gonna show the world. You know. I don't mean this in a heartless way because we were defending ourselves back then a lot. Some of us more than others, you know, but like it's called life, <laughs> you know, it's called life. We're humans on the earth. We're not perfect. We we give each other a hard time. Like, you know, back then we didn't have any critics on our side. You know what I mean? But we had the greatest fans in the world. Those fans, mostly very young girls, would go on to buy over 70 million new kids records in 1991. New kids were on top. So where personally was Joey? Who was Joey McIntyre in 1991? Oh, boy. You know, I hesitate because, of course, you want the truth and you just want whatever it feels genuine. You know, I want to say something perfect. I want to say that I was... X in 1991 and it fits in perfect with the fact that I was in Mm -hmm. one of the biggest pop bands in the world at the time and you know really at the height and playing stadiums and you know certainly before we kind of like imploded in our beautiful way but 91 you know I was 18 I was a little bird man you know I I there is definitely some arrested development as far as I am concerned. And I think that has a lot to do with being very busy and famous as a teenager. Yeah. You said there was some arrested development. What do you, what do you mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I say that in comparison to what I, I, I see kids now and how full they are as, as people at such a young age. I don't, see myself that way I think and again maybe maybe that was just because I didn't go to high school and I didn't have the normal teenage angsty journey of figuring things out at the same time 
Every time we hear about high school, everyone refers to it as the the worst time in their lives. So, I mean, I don't. Maybe I dodged a bullet yeah. there, but I don't know. I it, it just a lot happened to me um, at that age. Yeah, but I I know you now, and you are well adjusted and put together, as far as I can tell. You're laughing. Yeah. New Kids' third album, Step by Step, came out in 1990, and it sold three million copies. Still a big hit. Just a lot fewer millions than Hangin' Tough. It was a precarious time for the band, and they got offered a huge and risky gig. Tell me about the Super Bowl halftime show. Oh, jeez. From today's perspective, the Super Bowl halftime show seems like a real coup, a spot for a Springsteen or a U2 or a Katy Perry and Left Shark. Now it's a gig that puts an official stamp on you, says you are iconic. But up until 1991, no current pop stars had ever played the halftime show. Pre-1991, it was still Up With People or the Grambling State Marching Band, or I'm serious here, Carol Channing. The 1990 halftime show featured master of prestidigitation Elvis Presto doing a 3D card trick sponsored by Diet Coke. The Super Bowl is the biggest television event of the year. More than 100 million pairs of eyes on you. I mean, that's that's the peak. No, we, we that was the cliff. In 1991, New Kids had just come off their Magic Summer Tour, sponsored by Coke, one of the biggest selling tours of the decade. There were New Kids on the Block t-shirts. There were New Kids on the Block lunchboxes. There were New Kids on the Block dolls. There was a New Kids on the Block Saturday morning cartoon, for God's sake. And then, my favorite... There was a New Kids on the Block hotline. 900-909-5KIDS. Hi, we're the New Kids on the Block. Fans could call and listen to a recording. $2 for the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Under 18, ask your parents for permission. Just pick up your phone and call. And just to give you a sense of how this thing was being marketed, I need you to hear this line from Joey McIntyre. You know, we're not too young to fall in love. And if you're one of the special callers, you get to talk to us live. Hang on the line at 45 cents each additional minute, and eventually I might come on and fall in love with you. New kids were raking it in, but all that money wasn't free. Everything happened so fast, you know, so... When we talk about, you know, we started talking about us at CBGB's and you think, what are new kids on the block filming a a video in one of the most hollowed rock and roll clubs of all time? But like we were city kids, you know what I mean? We were a black and white movie, you know, and you look at those first four videos and they're completely genuine and they they that's what drew people to us. And then, you know. The business said, wait a minute, your fans are five years old. Your colors should be fluorescent pink and green and yellow, not black and white. And then by the t- six months later, we said, why are there slippers with our face on them? You know what I mean? Like, and and we were still at an era in 1991 and 1990 that like it just got away from us. And it didn't mean that the managers were bad people. They weren't trying to steal from us. It just got away from us. It happened too fast. New Kids on the Block wanted to grow up. The 1991 Super Bowl halftime show was marketed as the first all-kids halftime show. A small world salute to 25 years of the Super Bowl brought to you by Walt Disney World. And it is something else. A cast of actual children, small children, playing cheerleaders, referees, and players in a choreographed slapstick football game coached by Roger Rabbit and Goofy. People in Chippendale Rescue Rangers costumes do the running man to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. 
A five-year-old boy with a bowl cut sings Wind Beneath My Wings to the men and women of the armed forces. And then new kids on the block come out, and literally 2,000 children in the costumes of our small world run at them. As I watch this, I realize this halftime show is why we now have halftime shows with Springsteen and U2 and Katy Perry and Left Shark. This one is corny. This is the one that makes the NFL say, how about we change course here? New Kids on the Block had the same discussion. We didn't want to be performing with Mickey Mouse. You know what I'm saying? I had just turned 18. The rest of the guys were 21, 22. That's a big difference. Yeah. They were they were ready to move on in a lot of ways. And and you know, not be seen in that way. And so, you know, it in many ways it was that classic thing of you know, the stress of the outer world was coming in and it, and and it was really nothing personal. We 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 stuck together, and we've uh, certainly, obviously, over the years, have respected and loved one another. We we just kind of lucked out, but you know, we we didn't want to be there. You know what I mean? We didn't want to be in you know white and gold and have Mickey Mouse and thousand five year olds running behind us. Like we wanted to maybe not rock out, but like do it a little differently. So, but the wave had already showed up. And do you say no to the Super Bowl halftime show? This was the Super Bowl when Whitney Houston sang the national anthem and it went to number one. It was at the height of Operation Desert Storm, the original Iraq war, before they rebooted the franchise in 2003. America had war fever in 1991. Newscasters like Arthur Kent and I swear to God, Wolf Blitzer became heartthrobs. And in wartime, if you're lucky, sometimes you dodge a bullet. ABC, who aired the Super Bowl that year, knew how good war is for ratings. So at the end of the first half, they cut away to a news package about Operation Desert Storm. They didn't air the halftime show. Some ABC affiliates did air the halftime show after the game, but most didn't. Most just went to the premiere of the big new comedy that the network was so proud of they gave it the plum post-Super Bowl spot, Davis Rules starring Randy Quaid and Jonathan Winters. New Kids on the Block got the biggest stage in the world on the highest-rated television event of the year in a show that was extremely corny, and almost nobody saw it. But the tension in the group was growing, and the culture was changing. As Chris Melanfi told us in the last episode, the pop charts were beginning to more accurately reflect America's tastes in music. We were starting to want something darker, more experimental. The alternative radio format, artists like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, was blowing up. Hip-hop was going mainstream. And the music New Kids on the Block was releasing wasn't cutting it. MTV just almost changed, like, you know, overnight. It really did. It really did. And I'm, I'm wondering what that feels like to a massive pop act. Did you, did you feel like, oh, oh boy, we might not be a part of what's next? No, I think, you know, I, I think it's more specific. I think I think our journey is is just more personal. When you talk about the music and you think of the Hangin' Tough album and the way we recorded that record with the, the soul and the integrity and the time and the fun and the work, it, you know, we never felt like, wow, how did that happen? Like, we knew that we put the work in. And then 
you know, because it was like everything else, because we were so popular, you got to rush out the next album. You know, artists do that all the time and they still do. They still do, you know, and they swear it's a good album, but everyone's everybody and everyone plays along with it. But it's not really as good as the one that really took off. You know what I'm saying? It's like you get a free spin. Like Billy, listen, listen, let me let me get whatever, because no one cares anyways. But Billy Eilish, you know, that that single, I can't even name it. You know, I'm not your friend that anyone, you know, that's an album cut from the album before. That's not the next hit record, but everybody's gonna play it. Yeah, you know, because they love her, but the record's not as good, you know. So it's that's just the way. It works, you know. Shots fired against Billie Eilish. Shots fired. Yeah, I know. She's, yeah. <laughs> Nobody cares, <laughs> thank God. So, <laughs> so, you know, but my point is, is obviously, you know, our second album, or our third album, but our album after Hanging Tough, Step by Step was a massive record. That was a great hit record. Jordan sang an amazing lead. It was awesome, but the album didn't have the thing because we were rushing it. We were recording it in hotels. We weren't on the same page creatively, you know, so it wasn't Nirvana that did it. It was us that did it. So I felt I never connected our fall, if you will, with Nirvana and grunge. New Kids on the Block had stuck together through the struggle for success, through nonstop touring, through being adored by young girls and vilified by critics, through that hotline. But the stress of trying to decide what to do next while they were on the mountaintop and any tiny misstep could send them tumbling down was tearing them apart. At the 1990 American Music Awards, New Kids on the Block won Best Duo or Group and Best Album for Hangin' Tough. They performed a big medley of their hits. The 1991 American Music Awards, first of all, were hosted by Keenan Ivory Wayans and Bart Simpson. I'm really confused. What is going on, man? Oh, where's the host of this thing, Annie? Where's that Keenan Ivory Wayans? Where is he? I'm not supposed to be the host. Here he is. Let me find that guy. Get on with the show. That is Nancy Cartwright, the woman who does the voice for Bart Simpson, saying words that are being acted out by someone in a Bart Simpson suit. It is terrifying. But at those 1991 American Music Awards, new kids wanted to go a little harder. In our performance that year, you talk about change. If you go from our performance at the American Music Awards in 1990 to our performance in 1991, talk about a sea change. Because we were into hip-hop. We were into different music. So we wanted... We wanted a different look and vibe as well, you know? So they performed Games, a hip-hoppy single from their No More Games remix album. Flavor Flav made an appearance. Donnie Wahlberg wore a War Sucks tank top and sent the performance out to... Toto Jealous! No good knucklehead! We've been trying to keep up there! But I'm gonna tell you what, we ain't going out like that! And if you think so, you can kiss my felt a little defensive. And on the inside, Joey was beginning to panic. They were up for best duo or group again. But unlike last year, when winning had been an honor, winning this year felt like a matter of life and death. It was us and uh, Aerosmith and someone else, you know? And I just remember, like, Danny was next to me, and I was like, man, <laughs> you know, 
I just had the idea that, like, if we won, then it would give us another year. You know what I mean? I think Aerosmith won. We didn't win, you know? But I'm like, it's over if we don't win. You know what I mean? Aerosmith did win. The other nominee in the category, by the way, was Belle Biv DeVoe. In 1993, New Kids on the Block shortened their name to NKOTB, which I'm going to be a dick and point out is the same number of syllables, and released the album Face the Music. Face the Music sold 136,000 copies in the States, total about what Hangin' Tough would have sold in a single week three years earlier. And the single Dirty Dog, D-A-W-G, didn't make the top 40. Jonathan Knight left the band due to extreme stage fright. The remaining four soldiered on for a few months and then decided to call it a day themselves. The new kids on the block party was over. Joey was 21, a young man raised on cupcakes. I I think of often, I, I had just... It was just when New Kids broke up and I jumped right into a movie. It was it was called The Fantastic because it was based off the, the off-Broadway, longest off-Broadway running show. And and I didn't think much of it. And I had a publicist at the time. And I think it was like with E.T. or something. They were going to be like the, the 10 hottest, you know, young actors or whatever, you know, potentially. You know what I mean? Do an interview with this guy. And I remember like what he said, what do you want and my answer was incredibly superficial. It was incredibly sugary and like a cupcake. I said, I want a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. I want to be on the cover of GQ and I want to be on David Letterman. And I could, in retrospect, I, I heard it. It was like, I heard the, the, the silence on the end of the phone from the decent guy but he was a journalist you know what i mean it wasn't it was it was not the deep answer he looked for and you know he went back to his editor and said he's not our guy joey didn't know what he wanted and he didn't know how to relax it's like a breakup they say it takes half as long of the relationship (laughs) to get over it you know so if we were together, if we had like, you know, six or seven strong years, you know, we needed a few years to just zone out and, you know, have a lost weekend. And, you know, I remember talking to Donnie, it's like along the way and we share a work ethic, too. And, you know, we just come from working class families. And he basically said, like, there were times where you ha- you would have to defend playing around a golf, you know, because like, am I doing enough? Am I retired at 21? And it felt slothy. It felt, you know, there were moments of like, what am I doing? Sometimes the perfect thing to do is to buy the farm for a few years, you know? I know what you said you thought you wanted in 1991. Do you, what do you think you wanted for real in 1991? Or, or oh. was the public answer also the private answer? Yeah, you know, I didn't want much, you know what I mean? And maybe that that's why thats why I was like, you know, I mean, it's very clear what Donnie Wahlberg wanted, right? I mean, he, he wanted to make a rap album, and he did, and it was a massive hit, and now the world has Mark Wahlberg, you know what I'm saying? So he was just in a different place, and I, I, I'm cut from a different cloth. You know, I came up in the theater, you know what I mean? So I wanted the next show. I wanted the next show. I wanted the next song. I wanted the next performance. I wanted the next stage. That That's all. You know, I, I love being on stage. I love to perform. So, you know, and that kind of hooks up into like, what what's 
the party's over? What do you mean? Like, what, what, uh, come on, man. Let's, you know. And, uh, so that's, it was, it was simple. It was simple what I wanted, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a big, I didn't have a lot of big dreams in 91. My dreams in 1991 didn't necessarily include working with Joey McIntyre on MTV in 1999 or seeing the New Kids on the Block stadium tour at least twice and screaming my head off. But all of those things happened, so maybe I just don't know how to dream big enough. We'll get into all of that in a bit. I feel like I need another viewpoint on the sudden impact moment. I know how I reacted to the Motown Philly video as a 20-year-old guy, but I want to know how it played for the younger women who also comprised a big part of the MTV VH1 BET audience. Really, more than anything, what I want is an excuse to talk to Winter Mitchell. She's a digital branding expert, a journalist, a cultural omnivore like me, and she's the co-host of the excellent podcast, Waiting to Exhale. Winter Mitchell, can you tell me what you're seeing? I'm looking at the boys to men, <laughs> boys to men Motown Philly official video, and mm-hmm. and a and a white a group of white males called Sudden Impact just flashed across the screen. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Um, do you remember seeing this video in 1991? Oh, a hundred percent. I was a very very big boys to men fan. I rooted for them. If I want to talk about like the black, you know, harmonizing group universe, that sort of like that Motown Philly, what do you call that? New Jack Swing that came out. But I also Mm -hmm. want to talk about the universe of R&B, like guys singing groups that look like bank tellers. And I feel like they were like the top of that with the ones at the very bottom, the ones that sing, I want to set you up, color me bad. So they were like of the black, of the, not the black, of the bank teller singing, harmonizing yes. group. They were like the kings and champions of that. I well, love they them. were fully in the Alex Vanderpool era. Yes. As as the crawl in the video tells you. Right. Um, right. Yeah, they were all turned out in, in sport coats and shorts. Right, right. <laughs> that a fresh was... summer idea. There's a lot of visual information in the Motown Philly video. There's all the East Coast family stuff. There are references to Temple University and to the Performing Arts High School where Boys to Men came together. There's a scene at Gino's Steaks. And at a couple different moments, words across the bottom of the screen say, coming soon, the Alex Vanderpool era. This is a reference to a character on All My Children at the time, a preppy nerd named Alfred Vanderpool. In the liner notes for Boys to Men's debut album, The guys are listed by their names and by the nicknames Michael Bivens wanted them to be known by. So Wanye was Squirt, Sean was Slim, bass voice Mike was just bass, and Nathan, the preppiest member of the group, was Alex Vanderpool. The nicknames didn't really stick, and nobody seemed to press the issue. But it speaks to Michael Bivens' ambition in the world of marketing. He was always looking for a way for the listener to connect to the music and to the artist, a way to build buzz, which is what he was doing with Sudden Impact here. So, did it work? Did Sudden Impact make an impact on you as a young viewer? Absolutely not. No? No, because I wasn't thinking, here's what you need to understand, Dave. This era was coming in like a steamroller. So, like, this this trying to sort of pick up where the new kids on the block were slowly falling off era was just, that era came to a fast like it 
that was just like, like done. Um, And so I don't think Sudden Impact had a chance in hell. I tell Winter about my obsession with this story, what I've learned about Yvette Nicole Brown and Hayden and what Michael Bivens was building with the East Coast family and how weird it is to me that Sudden Impact never had their moment. But Winter was young in 1991, so to her, it makes perfect sense. As compelling as the story you told me was, there was never any moment that they were going to pop off. <laughs> there, was, there was just, when they pop up on the screen, again, the bank teller aesthetic works because it was like, we're not super sexy, but you can bring us home to, our, to your parents. And they will be like, that's a nice guy. He's cute. He seems like a good guy for you. That aesthetic to me were like all of these sort of like, it was like the antithesis of Jodeci, which is like, you don't want these guys coming near your daughters, but boys to men will take you to prom. And there was the whole Wanye and Brandy of it all. These white guys, no offense to these white guys, but they're in that two second moment, while I remember it, it didn't create a sudden impact. (laughs) And it was never going to. They just didn't have the aesthetics. No offense to them. The missing piece of the puzzle is what Michael Bivens was thinking signing them at this moment as New Kids on the Block were huge. Was there a moment of, New Kids on the Block was coming for us, now I'm coming for them? Of course! I mean, in 1990, they were the big, New Kids on the Block was the biggest group in town, in the world. They were huge. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't get bigger than that. So seeing an, yeah. an, an opportunity for, for competition and also... From Michael Bivens' perspective, I don't know him. I'm not speaking on his behalf. But considering that Bobby was on his way to, you know, by now, what? He was almost married to Whitney. He was a a fantastic solo artist at this point. They didn't know what their legacy was going to be. He was taking a chance on anything. And I think he was trying to capture wherever it was going to be. So like young boys that are like street boys who can harmonize these, you know, good like college going, you know, young adult men who can harmonize. Like, he was just trying to capture whatever it is on top of what was he was creating with BBD. While I was working on this show, Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project, a docu-series called This Is Pop came out on Netflix. A bunch of one-hour episodes, each one featuring a different pop act. There's a Boys to Men episode that I watched. And something that really jumps out at me is how much work Boys to Men had to do to get ready for their big break. They didn't even meet Michael Bivens. They didn't even try to sing for him until they knew they were the best. We don't know yet whether Sudden Impact had to do the same amount of work or whether they got a leg up because they were handsome white guys who looked a little like new kids on the block. We can't know for sure what Michael Bivens was thinking or to what degree race factored into his decision to work with them. But in 2021, we have to ask the question, mostly because we haven't heard them. The problem with this all is that I have no idea if they're good or not. I'm not Michael Bivens, so I can't say uh, from a industry perspective uh, as an industry like, you know, tastemaker, decision maker, uh, if they would have gone on to great success. You know what I mean? Like, I, there's no there's just no way to predict without really knowing. Second thing is I feel really bad because a, all America got was like two seconds of them, which is completely amazing marketing, by the way. Like Michael Bivens 
you know, he knew I have this, this group is going all the way. I got to shove in all this other stuff that I got. I get it. It's like a total, like Benny Medina, Puff Daddy. Like I, 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 I get that sort of like ability to sort of like make it happen, make it work. But yeah, we've we've been calling it the uh, the Michael Bivens extended cinematic. Exactly, universe. exactly. And so I get the whole point of it. But these guys didn't even have a chance. They didn't even have a chance. And that feels really shitty. I feel shitty for them. But I also, having worked in the industry this long now, I also dim the brakes. Dims the brakes. I mean, there's a lot of people we look at we look back on and we, you know, wonder what happened to them. Remember the, the, the brouhaha over Gretchen Mall? That was such a big deal. Yes. And all cover of Vanity Fair. Out of nowhere. This is the one. This is the one. Yeah. And I couldn't pick her out of a lineup now. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, 20 plus years of Sienna Miller. I still don't know which one she don't is. Don't know which one she is. But... Is there a is there any way possible to redeem these 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 gentlemen? Because I would love them to have some redemption. They should they deserve a redemptive arc. You know by now that I agree with Winter. It's never too late for redemption, or even just to meet sudden impact once and for all. And it is never the wrong time to reboot the Alex Vanderpool era. So let's return to the block where Joey McIntyre, once a new kid and one of those kinds of famous where you can't just go next door and not be famous, is now sitting in a parked car, zooming with me on his smartphone. After initially just trying to stay super famous in the wake of New Kids on the Block's breakup, he took some time off, took a step back and regrouped, caught his breath. He returned in 1999 with a solo album called Stay the Same. That album got a couple hit singles, a couple videos on the TRL charts. That's where we met. Now, we definitely did episodes of Total Request live together, but I cannot find any of them. What I could find on YouTube was this. I found a clip from a celebrity episode of Say What Karaoke, which I am co-hosting with Jerry Springer and Joey McIntyre duets with Jamie Lynn Sigler, Meadow from The Sopranos, on Aerosmith and Run DMC's Walk This Way. Okay, yeah, I typed those words, I said them out loud, I am now looking at them, and they still don't make any sense to me. Joey got back into theater, playing the lead in Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom off-Broadway, which I went to see, and his performance made me cry so hard, people turned and looked. That is not a joke. He started touring again, theaters this time, instead of arenas. Different, more intimate experiences. He got back on track, back to doing the things he loved, except this time with a feeling of gratitude for them. Did you have a sense for what 2021 would look like for you in 1999? Nah, 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 nah. No, I mean, you know, I I love live performance, man. I mean, I love to make records, too. I mean, I do love to sing in a studio and write music and that that electricity that you get about songwriting and oh man this is good you know what i mean and let me keep trying and let me keep swinging at it and let me get the vocal and make some magic um but like if i'm doing shakespeare in new jersey i mean it's a beautiful theater but like if i'm if i'm doing shakespeare and it and it's paying 700 bucks a week then i'm good you know what i mean that's that's my journey like i've i've earned that that's what i want to do you know 
and I'll always have it. Like I, I love an intimate setting and I, and I'm lucky enough to play arenas too. So yeah, in 2008, new kids on the block got back together. And in the last few years, they've played big summer package tours with Nelly and TLC or Tiffany, Debbie Gibson and Salt and Peppa. I have been to these summer shows and they are insane. Those five-year-old girls who rushed the Super Bowl stage in 1991, they're 35 now. They got a babysitter at home and a plastic tumbler of Pinot Grigio in their hands. They are ready to throw down. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you get a chance to see new kids live, go. I wouldn't have thought in 1991 that in, you know, 2019, 2020, I'd go to the Hollywood Bowl and see new kids on the block and have the time of my life. Yeah. But I did. Yeah. And we do. You know, I I think the, the, the quick math is, number one, take 14 years off you know, as a group and as a band. Because, <laughs> um, you know, so many bands could have, to certain degrees, similar experiences, but they don't because bands don't stay together for a lot of different reasons, you know? And we were able to move on and have lives and then get back together 15 years later. And, you know, our fans were ready too, you know? And, and, now we get to, with time and a little maturity, you know, we get to look back and embrace those moments with a sense of humor, but with a lot of love and, and admiration for what we were able to share. And uh, we benefit from this time. And now, you know, we're like family with our fans, you know, and so, you know, we're not going anywhere. And, you know, now it's it's a combination of, our work and our intention and our connection with our fans and the right kind of management to, you know, facilitate that, you know what I mean? To keep the party going in a healthy way, in a fun way. Joey McIntyre got what he wanted from his life and all it took was being grateful for what he already had. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. For taking the time. I hope you get a nugget or two for that. Go inside where it's warm. Sudden impact. Sudden impact. We're finding them. But the whole East Coast family story is really interesting. Like people would just go to where Belle Biv DeVoe was staying when they toured and just sing in Michael Biven's face. And then sometimes he would sign them. Yvette Nicole Brown, uh, actress from Community and and various other things, she was one of them. She was a singer. Oh, really? She was a solo act as part of the East Coast family. Yeah. I'll I'll send you a video. Oh, my gosh. Those are fun times, man. I don't think it happens like that. It's it's almost like, a, well, Motown Philly, right? I mean, it's that Motown, you know, like, just get me in front of her, man. You know, and we came from that. And uh, it's uh, it's sweet. It's sweet. I'm glad you're celebrating that and, and, and kind of going back into that world. So I look forward to seeing what you find. So Hayden has put in a good word for me to Aaron Kane. I have followed up with an email to the address that is on Aaron's YouTube channel. And after a few days, I check my email. And there is a message from Aaron Kane. And I hesitate for a moment before I click on it, because what if he wants to leave this all behind him? What if he doesn't want to talk at all? What if I'm out of story and it's only episode four? It's like that certified mail notice back when I got kicked out of college. I know something important is in the post. I just don't know what it is until I open that message up. This email contains the future. I click it open, and there they are. Ten short words and a lot of exclamation points. Hey, 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, that would be awesome. Let me know. Oh, my God. We have made contact with sudden impact. We will talk to the legendary Aaron Kane, the man in the middle, the guy in the bow tie, on Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. This has been an Exactly Right production. Written by me, Dave Holmes. Produced by Hannah Kyle Crichton. Recorded, mixed, and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Additional engineering and assembly by Annalise Nelson. Music by Ben Wise. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstart, and Danielle Kramer. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Exactly Right. And follow me at Dave Holmes. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Binge the show ad-free on Stitcher Premium. For a free month, head to stitcherpremium.com slash impact and enter promo code impact when you select a monthly plan. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.